And welcome to For What It's Earth, the podcast that has a look at all things nature, climate change, environment, sustainability, makes big issues a little bit more bite-sized and asks, is there anything that you and I can do to help save the planet just a little bit? My name's Emma and this week I'm absolutely delighted to be venturing south, virtually of course, uh, to learn a little bit more about conservation in the African bush, what that actually looks like, with my wonderful friend, conservationist and now author, Rosie Miles. Rosie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Emma. It's been a long time coming, but at last I'm actually in decent Wi-Fi and I can talk to you <laughs> face to face properly. But for context, we've been buddies for a good couple of years, but most of the time you have been uh, in living in places like Botswana and Malawi where you've had absolutely no internet. And we've survived through the medium of voice note. And now you're back in the UK for Christmas and I've snuck on you and said, listen, get yourself on Zoom. I want to record a conversation with you because you've got the best anecdotes <laughs> and a fascinating insight into what actually life and conservation is like in Africa, which is something I have absolutely no personal knowledge of. So I'm going to be picking your brains. Well, I'm very pleased to have this opportunity to share my <laughs> insight more widely <laughs> because I do hound you with 10 minute voice notes quite regularly and you're one of my few friends that puts up with that and then sends me one back well, hound, which is hounding <laughs> is absolutely the wrong word for for you know a little glimpse into our friendship here the, the voice notes are normally me saying oh this week I had this meeting and I went for this walk and um you know I laid a floor in my kitchen and then you're like hey um just just calling you on the way to go and help some giraffes they got stuck in the swimming pool nearby and we've had to create a ramp from sand so that they can get back out. Or like, I'm just waiting for a pangolin to come out of her hole so that I can weigh her and check she's all right. How are you doing? It's, like, it's just <laughs> incomparable. Um, our lives are just such, um, such different trajectories, but it's so exciting to find out what you've been up to. It's, it's brilliant. And you're one of the most passionate people about what you do and about protecting, you know, wildlife in the African bush. So it really was only a matter of time before I dragged you in front of a microphone and made you talk to me about these issues, to be honest. Well, I'm very pleased to be here and it's lovely to see your smiley face at last. <laughs> we're, we're Christmas jumpered up. Uh, we're recording just a few days away from the big day. We've both got maybe an alcoholic beverage in hand. There's a general feeling of celebration. Um, so let's start by celebrating your one good thing for the week. What have you done? What one good thing have you done this week uh, to save the planet and um, saving wildlife in the African bush as a job can't count? No. Um, and actually, I have to preamble this for someone's insane. When you're working in the African bushes, actually, I listen to your podcast every episode, obviously, and I feel really jealous a lot of the time when people are describing their one good thing because it's actually really hard to do a lot of those things in the bush there's no recycling opportunities. I drive a big diesel guzzling land cruiser every day and I don't have access to shops where we can just fill our Tupperware with yeah, Cheerios true. or what have you. Um, so it, I feel Is that the breakfast choice the of the bush, Cheerios? 
actually I've never eaten Cheerios in my life I don't know why I said Cheerios <laughs> I actually make my own muesli because you can't get muesli <laughs> in the supermarket I, I can't believe I derailed your point to ask you about Cheerios sorry back, back to the bush <laughs> but it's quite hard to do a lot of the things that are now becoming mainstream in in the UK um but this week uh I felt very good about my Christmas shopping because I managed to buy all my Christmas presents before I came back to the UK um, from an awesome little NGO project in Malawi that takes plastic rubbish off the streets and repurposes, recycles them into awesome little gifts. And I, as long as this is going out after Christmas, which I'm sure it, it yes, is. I'm not, I'm I'm not, not editing and releasing this, this before Christmas. I have <laughs> things to do. Bailey's to drink and presents to wrap. <laughs> I assumed that would be the case. So this is not a spoiler alert to all my family. Um, but all my gifts are beautiful things, useful things um, that have been repurposed out of plastic that was literally picked up off the streets um, so in cool. Malawi. And it creates its job creation. It's promoting artisan crafts, mm. removing rubbish and, and recycling. So I felt pretty good about that. And they're beautiful. And I bought some for myself as well. Uh, brilliant. <laughs> what are the things? What, what are they? Um, so there's the things like bag for life bags that inside are made from recycled plastic bags but on the outside it's recycled banana leaves that are woven into beautiful so they look like tote um yeah bags but it's recycled it's banana leaves um i've got things like because we're really into shampoo bars and things um now little pouches that you keep those in that keep your shampoo bars from going soggy but again it's all made from recycled materials super cool and some awesome little beer bottle cooler thingies because oh, it's really hot enough. Oh, koozies! Koozies, but made out of. We never, we never have them in the UK. Yeah. But when when I've been to America or spent time with Americans, they they're a massive thing, aren't they? Co- little, yeah, like, like little, um, little jackets sleeves. or sleeves that you put your yeah. beer in to keep them cool. They're so so cool. often they're made of like neoprene. Yeah, uh, materials. These are made out of recycled materials, and they look like. Um, your typical African patterned shirt and they've got sleeves and everything. So it looks like your bottle's wearing a little African oh, that's amazing. kente shirt. Yeah, they're really cool. So little little trinkets and things like that that are practical, useful, but are doing good for people and good for the environment. So I felt felt good about that. This, uh, uh, this rightly Christmas. so. Tick, 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 tick. Yeah. And it's, it's nice that you're giving people useful presents as well. The one thing that stresses me out this time of year is seeing the amount of just like stuff that is bought for stuff's sake. Kind of, kind of makes me feel a bit. Ugh. Yeah. So yeah, I feel I'm feeling good about that. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Well, mine. I'm actually going to defer mine to my mum because I'm I'm at my my parents' home and um, she has bought uh, crackers, uh, which are normally an example of like stuff for stuff's sake, um, because clearly I'm the Grinch. Um, but she's bought crackers that are made from recycled cardboard and are all completely compostable and there's not an ounce of like plastic or sparkle or anything in sight. Um, so I would commend my mum for that, having that's a think about nice. compostable stuff. Yeah, that's really nice. So it's Christmas here, but this kind of cold, dreary, soggy environment is not what you would normally call your natural environment anymore. You're based in Malawi, so let's go right in. What what do you do in Malawi right now? Tell us about your current job. So, yeah, I am currently based in Malawi. Just been there since April this year. 
um, working for an organization called African Parks, which some of your listeners may mm. have heard of, big NGO that um, focuses on taking over responsibility of existing parks in Africa that are really struggling um, for a variety of reasons. Um, so they're usually national parks that are run by government that are either don't have the funding or the resources or are struggling because of historical civil war or, or things like that. Um, and generally speaking, are devoid of wildlife and are a national park only on paper and have no wildlife left. Oh. And African parks take their expertise to restore these parks, restoring them ecologically, bringing wildlife back into the parks, but also the management and the infrastructure and training up local people to, to take over management of the parks, ultimately bringing in tourism and basically making them economically sustainable. Mm. And with the ambition of eventually handing them back over, back to the government once they are in, in a position where they are self-sufficient again. So they've currently, African parks are working in 11 different countries throughout Africa. They manage 19 parks, totaling about 15 million hectares, which is a, an enormous amount. Wow. I don't know what that is. In, I was going to say, is there a... In, in square miles. Can, I, we, I can, can we do that as a percentage of like land mass? Is that a... Gosh. Is that too much to ask? That's, that's too much. <laughs> because it's, it just, it's just because um, my ability to like visualise space on that scale is appalling. So that could be like 1% of southern africa could be temp I, I wouldn't have a clue i wouldn't have a clue but yeah sorry I but it's have a useful chunk because i know you like to do your bathfuls or your football pitch <laughs> sizes i should have prepared i apologize we, we've got to make it accessible to everyone that I measures know. things in bathtubs and football pitches sorry. and wimbledon courts um no that's fine that's my bad <laughs> should have given you some warning but regardless that is a massive chunk of land that is being actively managed for the good of wildlife and for people it is. It's a lot of area that is being actively protected now and restored. So I'm working in a park called Majeti, which is in the southern southern end of Malawi. Um, African Parks actually has a number of parks in Malawi, and Majeti was their first ever park that they st they took over responsibility for. So oh, there's right. a, a, a long heritage in Majeti, and it's a little bit of their um, sort of their poster child park because it's been so successful. Um, it was completely devoid of wildlife when they took it over in 2003, um, poached out basically. Um, all the animals had been, had been killed either for bushmeat or for selling ivory and, and things like that. And African Parks took over responsibility in, as I say, in 2003 and started reintroducing wildlife and um in that time, we've now introduced over 5,000 animals from 17 different species. Wow. It's a thriving ecosystem. Um, we're almost now getting to a point where some of those uh, species are sort of at their capacity again now. Oh, amazing. Um, In just a kind of a 20-year, just under 20-year. Yeah. So it is amazing to see how quickly the environment and species re-establish themselves if given a chance it's quite it is sort of uh, it's a message of hope mm. in, in what can otherwise often be quite a depressing mm. um <laughs> uh, sort of uh, arena Space. to work in yeah. <laughs> um 
And what does that involve you doing day to day? Because um, obviously the listeners haven't seen our WhatsApp thread where you're sending me pictures of helicopters and collars and like pangolins and all sorts. Tell, tell us what a, a week might look like for you. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's a huge operation and I'm one tiny little cog in the... In the a very that... important cog, I'm sure. <laughs> so my role at the moment is uh, overseeing all of the monitoring for the wildlife. Um, so if you can imagine when you start introducing animals back into a habitat where they haven't been, in some cases for more than 50 years, we hadn't had large carnivores in the environment. We've got to monitor how they are are utilizing the land, how, what they're eating, how they're interacting with each other, how they're interacting with other species and whether they're impacting on that. Some species like elephants and lions, their populations can grow quite quickly um, because they have very little threats when they're mm. in a protected environment. And then they start impacting on other species because they're eating too much or they're putting pressure on other species that are filling a similar niche. So my job is to be monitoring everything that is happening on the ground in terms of these animals, understanding who is related to who, because at some point we will start to get inbreeding between related individuals. Ah, okay. Um, and what, what do you do when that starts to happen? Does that involve moving some individuals to another African park? Yeah, and we've actually already done that. Uh, before I even arrived, um, we've translocated some rhinos and some cheetahs and swap them with other parks. So then we try as best as possible to mimic what would be happening naturally in a, a completely open, self-sufficient system. Mm. Um, but Malawi in particular is a heavily, heavily dense human-populated country. It's a tiny land, has a tiny landmass with a population of around 20 million people. Oh, right. Um, so outside of the national parks is just humans. So animals cannot, move between protected areas it's just it's not a possibility so even though the parks are quite big by say uk standards they're huge mm. um it's not big enough to be ecologically sustainable for our large species like elephants and lions that ha would have normally a, a huge home range so we have to mimic that natural dispersal of animals so we have already done that with some species so taken an adult male rhino that was the father of lots of the calves and swapped him with a different male um, so that we're bringing in fresh genetics and allowing the population to thrive. Well that's something that um, I mean obviously introducing genetic diversity is really important anyway but that's something that comes up quite a lot when we talk about ecosystems and climate change isn't it because the greater genetic diversity you can have in a population, the more likely it is that some members of that population will be able to not necessarily adapt to, but withstand whatever challenges are going to come with the changing climate, isn't it? So yeah. You do have to, you have to really have to future proof all of the work that you're doing now isn't necessarily about protecting the now, but also protecting what could be. Exactly. Yeah. And climate change is a, is a key thing for that, but also disease. And I think mm. we've seen how viruses spread through the human population in the last couple of years. Have we? But... What? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the same Considering is... the bulk of you and I's conversation over the last couple of weeks is, are you going to be able to come home for Christmas? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hate COVID. Uh, but, yeah. Um, but yeah, the same is true for wildlife populations. We've, I mean, at the moment in the UK, mm. you've got a bird flu 
outbreak. Um, we do. Go back and listen to our episode with Tom Morath from the Hawk mm-hmm. Conservancy to find out more about bird flu. Yes. Lovely plug there, Rosie Wiles. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry. Back to Africa. Pleasure. <laughs> um, but that's, I mean, at the moment, maybe it's not an issue, but we don't know that that's not going to be an issue in the future as well. And as you say, keeping species populations or small populations of wildlife as robust as possible to whether that's disease or or climate change or um, even just increasing anthropogenic stresses on mm. wildlife, um, then yeah, this all is all helping them sort of future-proof their populations. Mm. So I was going to ask whether I mean if we're discussing, you know, well we talked a little about some of the challenges you're facing in your national parks, but is it possible? To, am I being pig-headed to ask? very generalist questions such as what threats are wildlife experiencing in southern Africa? Is that stupid to try and generalise too much or are a lot of the threats that you're seeing the wildlife in the areas that you're working in common across a lot of the areas that you're working in? Because you've you've not just worked in Malawi, have you? You've been in Botswana, in South Africa, you've been all over the place. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, you, there's always a danger of generalisation um, with all these things and every single location is different because you're working with different people, different communities, different habitats, different ecosystems. Um, But there are key threads, and actually it's not that dissimilar to everywhere else in the world. Habitat loss is the the key problem um, Mm. still in Africa. And in fact, increasingly so, because we're still at a point in most African countries, not all African countries, but most African countries, countries population growth is still really high mm. um, and in Malawi they're estimating the, the human population will double by 2050 which is wow double. which is crazy because I already Gross. feel it really for me having worked in Botswana which has one of the lowest population densities in Africa to then come to Malawi I already feel it's a very high popula- human population density mm. um, so that's quite terrifying because there's actually not enough resources um, not enough food uh, Malawi gets hit very um, heavily with drought conditions. Um, so the human population is already struggling because of lack of resources and space. Mm. So doubling the population will only exacerbate that. And then that puts an increasing pressure on on wildlife populations. We're also, you're experiencing habitat loss, not just from expanding human populations, but from improving infrastructure because Africa is also a, a developing area um and i i hate saying africa africa is a continent with a huge number of uh, varied countries yeah. and, and cultures and areas but at the risk of generalizing it is it's developing and we're getting new infrastructure all the time uh, and our park just as one example our park we just lost a section of the park to a huge irrigation canal that's being built oh right that will provide water to hundreds of thousands of people in Malawi that are currently struggling to to grow enough crops to feed their families so it's a good thing it's a Mm. like the benefits to the human population are incalculable but it cut off the corner of our national park Mm. Um, these things are putting ever increasing pressure on on sort of little pockets of islands of habitat Mm. that's left and it's very hard to imagine that over time that's going to continue that every few years a corner of the park is going to be cut off mm. to provide for, for human populations. And then the other major thing, which I'm sure everyone has 
has heard something in the news about is, is poaching in, in mm-hmm. Africa. And that comes in a huge array of different scales. Again, it's impossible to generalize. And um, I've worked in South Africa when rhino poaching was just really kicking off in South Africa. And I was dealing with coming across rhinos that had their horns hacked off while they were still alive. And that's oh my gosh. beyond How was that breaking. for you? Um, I mean, it, it's horrible. These are animals that I follow every day and I feel like I have a personal connection with them. And it's it's the most horrific type of poaching. It's indiscriminate against whether it's males or females and females with calves or pregnant females mm. because they're trying to evade detection. It's done quickly and normally while the animal is still alive and then they're left to bleed out, often leaving calves behind with um, next to mothers that have slowly died over hours it's really really horrendous and you feel nothing but just blood-curdling rage Mm. but at the same time you have to ask why like what is going wrong in this world that people are coming in and doing that because it is you know it's a huge income stream for potentially communities that don't feel they have other options so it's, it's, it's one of those issues it's really hard to just stand very distant from and shout at and be angry about there's there is a lot feeding into it isn't there exactly and how can I ever possibly understand mm. what that person's situation is having grown up in the UK coming from what is considered globally as a privileged mm. uh, background there's no way I can ever comprehend what that person's personal life is to the point that actually it's not even always just about money. Sometimes these people are being threatened and saying they're if they don't go and poach rhinos or elephants or whatever it is, then their families will be in danger. So it's even beyond the point of just offering monetary reward. Mm. It, it can be sort of a, a a life or death situation. So it's so complex. I don't. I have no no answers <laughs> to what the solution is um but it's it's a massive challenge but then at the other end you have areas that are are limited to say bushmeat poaching in communities that traditionally lived off the land and their only source of protein is wild animal mm, meat and they've been doing that for centuries and then suddenly mm. it's been cordoned off as a national park and yeah and it's not permitted anymore. And that, again, comes with all sorts of challenges. But, yeah, it can be very emotive. Um, yeah. And that is, that's an issue. And sort of our emotional feelings about it are really driven by our own personal experiences and our own personal backgrounds. So mm. you may talk to someone coming from, say, the UK that can't understand that there's any excuse for poaching. Mm. But then if you're talking to a community that's done that for centuries and it was never an issue before, then there's two sides of the coin, basically. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah, it's very, um, it's a it's a challenge and it will be a, continue to be a challenge for a long time, I think. And I, I think I want to dig in slightly into something you've, you've sort of kind of touched on a bit there. And this is the kind of the, the concept of like white saviorism in conservation. And I suppose my question is, is it even right and fair that I'm asking you, you know, as a white woman, a non-African who's come from an educated background in the UK and then moved to Africa, um, you know, in my eyes, 
you're someone who has dedicated a lot of their life to being part of these communities and trying to actively be really helpful and be an expert in what you do. But would there also be people who say, who would criticise me having this conversation with you and say that I really should be going further and actually talking to people who've grown up in and always lived in these communities? You know, is it? I, I don't 100% know how to articulate what I'm feeling here. Yeah, and I, I think the fact that you're struggling to articulate is exactly how I feel about it as well Mm. Um, and I'm sure for certain when I first um, dreamt of coming to Africa working in conservation then I was naive and I was young and it was about the excitement and I was going to save the world and it was sexy Um, and I think that is still the case for a lot of African conservation it's really popular to come um, and say volunteer in Africa mm. and, and do conservation projects but I have and, and as you say I've talked about this with you before I have increasingly felt more and more uncomfortable about it and I think it is really important that we start to have these conversations and I think it is becoming a big topic of conversation now I'm having these conversation over and over again with lots of of, of my friends and colleagues about what what is our role mm. here and there is a long history of, let's say, neo-colonialism in conservation in mm. Africa. Um, and a lot of conservation is traditionally um, sort of this fortress conservation where we segregate off areas of land that's then set aside as a luxury, basically, that it's set aside for wildlife, but people who can afford it can come and enjoy it mm. through safari tourism photographic tourism even hunting tourism Mm. Um, but the local communities who are living alongside that are not necessarily benefiting from that and and in fact and no or or given any agency to be part of that yeah exactly and in fact in most cases have lost out of that because Mm. before they had access to natural resources but i think there is there is a movement of change um I started talking a lot to other friends from different backgrounds um, who are working in conservation. And I said, I don't know if I feel comfortable working in Africa conservation anymore because what, why am I here? The, like, I, why am I not doing this in the UK? Um, but uh, over and again, the responses I was getting from my friends that, that come from dif- different ethnic backgrounds were saying, but at least you've recognised that and then you're wanting to to work to improve the situation and so I have really been focused or really trying to focus on making sure that whatever I'm doing a part of that is is building local capacity so I'm here because I have the expertise to do what I'm doing now but while I'm doing it I need to be training up Malawians or Botswanans or wherever Mm -hmm. I am working to take over that legacy and I think that's sort of my way of compensating for me being allowed to live out my dream <laughs> with less guilt <laughs> if that it makes sense so you have you have worked in the conservation sector in the UK so how does that compare yeah and to be fair i learned a lot of really valuable skills working in the UK um and it wasn't first i actually was in africa first and then i went back to the UK and mm did a three-year stint which is when I met you and then came back to Africa um I put you off and you flew back to Botswana <laughs> sure I see <laughs> yeah exactly um there's fantastic conservation organizations in the UK and what they're really good at is 
the organizational level, or at least in my experience, um, the processes and, and making sure that projects are managed effectively. And I think there's some fantastic projects in Africa, but there's a lot of projects that were set up by people because they have a passion for a particular species or just a passion for Africa, but they lack the sort of the business mind, the project management mind. Um, oh, okay. Mm. And so, and maybe operating it less effectively than they could be. My What I experienced in the UK was, I don't know if it's because there's a lot of red tape in the UK, mm, <laughs> um, <yes>. <laughs> which we all love, obviously. But actually what it does make you do is do things properly and not sort of mess about just because you have a passion for something. Yeah, often um, the tape, infuriating though it is, has been the, the groundwork that's been laid behind the tape is very important. Exactly, yeah. And I, I did, I learned such an invaluable tool set by working in that sort of environment that I've now carried forwards. Mm. The other thing that I really like about conservation in the UK is people are really passionate about it. And I know you keep saying that about me here. Um, <laughs> but I think some of the people I've worked with in the UK are the most passionate conservationists. Yeah, I, do you know I what? I, I have to, I have to agree. I mean, I've only ever worked in conservation in the UK and a, a touch in Sweden, but it is an amazing community to be part of. And and so many people are so wonderfully passionate about nature on their doorstep. And that's what I like, I think, about conservation in the UK. Because because it, it has been my doorstep. Yeah. Um, and what, watching people that are like, do you, know, do you know what? Yes, I could go off and work with some really sexy animals in, uh, in Africa, or I could go and save the Amazon rainforest. But I do think there's something very romantic about trying to protect the little things nearby that yeah. have always been there as part of your life. Absolutely. I think there's seems to be a little bit more of a holistic approach in the UK. People might specialise in, in a particular species. Um, I mean, I've worked with people who focus on one toad, for instance, in the UK. Lo but love a good natterjack toad. Love a good natterjack toad, exactly. But on the weekends, they're out counting bats or they're mm. doing... I don't know, beach cleans or something. And there just seems to be a little bit more of a holistic approach to conservation in the UK. And I don't know if that is because there isn't the big sexy species. Um, hey, don't don't be knocking <laughs> insert sexy species here. My, my brain stops. What sexy species beavers, do we have here? Beavers, beavers. Beavers, beavers. Yeah. Nothing if not a sexy species. It yeah. is a sexy species, but how many people are working on beavers in the UK? Tiny, I can probably count tiny. them. Yeah, you know them all as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I think... No, that, I, know, I know what you mean. It, it, it does difference. feel like everybody looks more... Than, I've never noticed it, but as soon as you said that, I really can see it. Everybody looks at the network of things and yeah. how they all you know, link together and the stories that that all tells and ecosystem health as a whole. Yeah. That is such a good point. It is. And it's really, to me, it's really obvious because in Africa, and I think it, a little bit of a problem that has come about because of the funding regimes that we work under, but people tend to species specialise in Africa. Right. So you have people that are lion people, you have people that are elephant people, or even you have entire NGOs that are dedicated just to elephants or dedicated mm -hmm. to lions. Um, which is great because you get people who are world experts in that species, but they're competing with all the other elephant scientists and all the other lion scientists for the same pot of money. And it mm. becomes quite 
competitive people are not willing to share their data and their ideas oh, um we're getting in the way of ourselves becomes, constantly as humans yeah, no, exactly and then it becomes so focused on one species that it can be at the detriment of say other species or the ecosystem um but one one of the things i mean okay speaking of the uk rewilding as a term what whether you like it or not rewilding uh, this idea of looking at an ecosystem as a whole or a landmass or an environment as a whole and trying to well, I mean, it has different definitions to different people, doesn't it? It's, in some instances, it's leaving it alone to let nature reclaim it. And in some instances, it's, it's kind of actively managing it to restore it to something that it once was to then let nature, you know, do its own thing. But you, you've you kind of described your work as being a, a, a rewilding project, but with slight differences to how we do it in the UK. So what what's your take on, what's the hot take on rewilding in Malawi? Yeah. Um... I think that's that's right, and I know rewilding has been a bit of a buzzword in the UK for the last couple of years, and I think it's awesome. I'm like really pro it, but I'm here for it. Yeah, I'm loving it. Obviously, it has to be done in the right ways and in the right places, but it it is a different ball game in Africa because rewilding for us is is literally we translocated 500 elephants um, a couple of years ago. Which I don't know if you can even begin to imagine what that. No, looks I can't. Like. I can't imagine what five. <laughs> that, that's just. I've seen Asian elephants, and they are immensely smaller than the African elephants, aren't they? And even then, I was impressed by what like five of them and the the space that they took up as as organisms, living things. Um, no, I can't wrap my head around the number of bathtubs that that many elephants would equate to. <laughs> so it's a lot many. of bathtubs. A lot of bathtubs. <laughs> But yeah, it's just on a massive scale. And as I say, Majetti, where I'm working, was was literally, they were down to a handful of antelopes left. And now wow. we have in excess of 250 elephants. We did have 400 elephants, but we translocated some. Um, we've got rhinos, we've got lions, we've got cheetahs. We just introduced wild dogs this year for the first time in 50, mm. 50 years. Giraffes, we brought 10 giraffes in this year that travelled for four days on the back of a truck from South Africa. Wow. Which they drove through Mozambique, which is, again, one of the poorest countries in Africa. They're driving down the highway past people that will have never seen a giraffe in their lives. And, and the ten, one experience of it is going past a giraffe a head popping out. <laughs> wow. It just blows my <laughs> mind, the scale of these operations. Um, and it takes exorbitant amounts of money and it takes exorbitant amounts of dedication and skills and then and the amount of people that are involved but but when you see a place like Majetti now which is beyond magical it's it blows my mind I already went I went there for a couple of months I don't know if you remember but I said I'm just going to go there for a couple yes, of months yes you were like I'm going to go and visit a I'm friend and go, help him out for a I'm bit on his project yeah. next thing I know you're like right I live here this yeah. is my home and I will be staying here <laughs> doing stuff. It's like this weird place. It's, but it suits you. you. It suits you so well where you are. Yeah. But it happens to everyone. I'm not even joking. There's so many people who are here in Majetti that they were like, oh, we're just going to come on holiday and then never left. And See, this is, maybe this is why it's, <laughs> my, my partner, Mark, I keep saying, oh, I can't wait to go and visit Rosie at some point. And um, I can see this glazed look in his eyes because he knows I'll come back and be like, how do you feel about moving to Africa? Um. <laughs> it is, it's crazy. And we keep having, we often have um, like special guests, VIP guests coming. Um, podcast hosts, fully funded. Yeah, fully funded podcast <laughs> hosts and people like that. But, um, yeah. 
shop that like a dream sponsored work or or a passionate about conservation or whatever what have you and and they stay for a few days and at the end they're literally in tears when they're leaving they're, they're boarding their eyes out and they're saying thank you so much for putting all these this on for us and we're like no no nature's not putting this, it on we're not putting it on this is literally what we do every day um it is an incredible place and i actually can't imagine it now what it was like 20 years ago without mm. wildlife that blows my mind that it's restored to that extent yeah so it, it is a different ball game i think that obviously there are some reintroduction projects in the uk like beavers for instance um love a beave love a beave but a lot of the rewilding projects as you mentioned before are more about just letting things return naturally or or stopping an activity that was um, inhibiting the natural growth whereas what we're doing in a lot of places in Africa is really hands-on management and mm. we're genetic testing animals before we introduce them so we know exactly who is related to who everything is vaccinated everything is collared so that I can track them I'm imagining you just in your, I mean, I know what your house looks like and I know it doesn't exist like this, but in my mind, you also have like a spaceship office where you're surrounded by screens <laughs> and you're just watching all of these like dots on screens and there's ah, like, oh, the elephants are over here, the giraffe's having a lovely time <laughs> over here. And you're just like masterminding what they're all doing. You you joke. That is what my office looks like. What? Though. I'm not, even, well, not my office, but we have what we call the control room, which is literally a bank of screens and I can I mean, see all the animals I could see where all the people are because we all have trackers in you've Nothing tagged to, your people yeah we've tagged <laughs> the people where all the vehicles are I can see what the voltage of the fence lines are I can see oh, what, that's how amazing. much rainfall there's been and it's all on these big screens I was just describing that to my family today that like conservation's gone quite tech now and it's amazing yeah. but it, it's it's unbelievably valuable because it's reducing or it's just making us so much more efficient mm, mm. Um, the amount of man hours that we were having to put in before this tech came in but or woman hours come or on, woman hours sorry um lady times lady, <laughs> lady times. maybe not but it's also just it's quite cool like I get excited yeah. I'm not really a techie person I've like I've never played a computer game in my life but I get really excited that I can just follow my animals around on the that, screen. That is so cool. It's a, it's on a massive scale. I can't even mm. begin to imagine that in like a little Fenland reserve in the UK. That <laughs> <laughs> we're not, we're not. See, we're, we're not all there, tagging all of our little <laughs> butterflies. Yeah, it's yeah. not quite the same. It doesn't really work with orchids. They don't move around so much. No, and it is crazy. Like it's so heavily managed. So. In some ways, it doesn't sit right with me. Like I'm a bit of a, I get accused of being a bit of a, a hippie and a, a dreamer and that my ideal world is that everyone is just in harmony and we don't need to do any active management. Sounds nice. Um, it's, it's a utopia. But in the reality <laughs> is it's not like that. And so we mm. do need to do this quite active management and and particularly in these, in these new reserves. It must be amazing to have that kind of intimate knowledge though of your of the species that you're working with because if you are only seeing the big cats that you're kind of like are on your reserve every now and again when you're having to track them manually um i guess you don't get to see as much of their personalities uh, as you might or understand the behavior on a, on a whole new level when you can just kind of drop in on a screen without having to actually bother them physically and chase them around the reserve yeah your level of understanding of them as no, a community no. and as individuals just must be a whole new level definitely and I mean there's a lot of 
controversy between scientists as to whether you should name your animals and and have that level of sort of contact with them. Well, I know which side you sit on. I sit on the naming because <laughs> I'm really bad at numbers, so I don't remember numbers. <laughs> She's a number five, six, seven. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, you have you have to be able to distinguish between the individuals you if you're following things like family structure. Exactly, and. For me personally, I think I do a better job when I have a more in-depth understanding of their personalities because I can read what they're doing. I can understand why they're doing something better. I think if you if you like um, reduce everything to a number as well, you take out a valuable part of that knowledge because they are they do have personalities. They, they are individuals. As soon exactly. as you make them just numbers and drones, you're going to lose a whole level of understanding that you might not have and connection with them, which is more than likely conducive to doing a much better job in creating a better environment for them. That's 100% right, because science is great, and we, not me, but we have some very clever scientists that do loads of modelling that's fantastic and really helps with conservation and, and management. But at some point, it's not correct, because it's not picking up those nuances about different behaviour. Um mm. And I find because I have spent such a lot of time on the ground with the animals and now I can monitor their movements even from my futuristic lab. The spaceship <laughs> office. The spaceship office. Yeah. Um, I can say with the predators, if we've got collars that are giving frequent enough GPS locations, I can tell you when an animal is mating. I can tell you when an animal is Damn. eating. I can tell you when an animal is injured. I can tell you when an animal is denning with cubs and this is all really important yeah information, information for us which a lot of the before we had you've got to know when the cheetahs are getting it on it. exactly well we would have missed it otherwise and i've always done that by eye because i understand the animals but now scientists are picking up those signature movement patterns with algorithms again so that's quite cool i'm obsolete now but but it is really cool that a lot of people who are working on uh it's not just the predators that they're, they're doing it with rhinos and elephants to pick up abnormal behavior patterns so if an animal for instance might be have a snare then it's oh right change movement patterns change you can find them faster and identify it that's exactly. cool it's really cool and you can pick that like as i say i can pick that up by eye from looking at their collar data but if you've got computer programs that are picking that automatically and then they actually send an alert saying mm, this animal's mm. behaving differently it's triggering a conflict movement response and then we can respond to that much more quickly and That's fantastic. it's just really cool it is really like incredibly it. cool yeah as soon as this pesky thing uh, named a pandemic is over i am so desperate to come out and and see see what your work is like um and i could and no doubt will, talk to you for many, many more hours. But I want to end on one final thing. A big congratulations from me. You are now an author. You've published Yay. your first book this year, Girl of the Wild. Yeah. And it's it's just the most wonderful account of your life working in Africa and in conservation. And it's it's told through quite an almost unbelievable series of like anecdotes of things that you've got up to, um, which are just in many ways, normal of a girl of the wild living in Africa, but to everyone else back home, um, we think are quite ridiculous. You know, you've removed like venomous snakes from like bedrooms and sofas and you've stood your ground when faced with like cheetah on foot and, and all of these things that, although I kind of always knew that you were capable of, actually being able to sit and read your book, I just felt like I was sat around the bushfire with you and you were regaling me with your stories. And it's, it's just, it's wonderful. So... I was going to recommend it to listeners to get more from you 
by reading Girl of the Wild, and I'll, I'll pop a lovely link in the description if you want to copy. But I was hoping maybe you might have a favourite anecdote to to whet the appetite of anyone that wants to know a, bit, a little bit more about the realities of living and working in, in conservation in Africa. <laughs> and I know you've got many to choose from. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for that glowing um, summary, Emma. And I should just say to everyone that Emma is got a special acknowledgement in my book because she was uh, <laughs> such a supportive person when I was writing this um, and giving me lots of uh, well cheerleading but also really invaluable advice about uh, from the communications aspect. You had a very uh, productive it. pandemic you did some of us watched the US office seven times and you wrote a book. <laughs> it's a, a labour of love that I've been wanting to write for a really long time but i I was struggling because I didn't want it to just be anecdotes. Um, and I think you we discussed that as well when I told you I was writing a book. One of the first things you said to me and it stuck with me was, but how is it structured? Like what is going to be the theme through it? And I knew I had to do that, but I couldn't, I hadn't settled on how to do that. But when the pandemic hit, I had time to think about it. I did that. So I guess, I mean, there are a lot of themes and a lot of messages throughout mm. the book. And I wanted it to be that, that it was, that there were messages and things that different people from from different parts of the world would take away from it, that you didn't have to understand the bush, you didn't have to have ever set foot in the bush, but you would still find something in it that that you could connect with. Mm. And so a lot of the sort of theme throughout the book is, is my personal insecurities and not feeling confident about my abilities which we also talk about a lot of doing the two of us <laughs> and have to cheerlead each other. You are the, the thing time. is you are one of the most capable women. That you're you're one of the only people I would want by my side in an adventure or like a crisis. Um, <laughs> and and I do I honestly think that your book has so much value in just cheerleading women and saying, do you know what you can do this? You can be a badass if you want to go and chase a dream that you've had since you were a child and make the life a life that you want it to be and give it the meaning that you want to have I think your book is a, is a really lovely way of just saying do it yeah it's, it's great anyway sorry exactly anyone can favorite do it. anecdote <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no I thought one story that I knew I had to put in the book um because it's probably the story that I've told most is very very early on in my um arrival in Africa when I was sitting in a bar um, with a couple of mates having some drinks and the, the power was out because this is South Africa and the power is nearly always out. So it was dark and there was a little yappy Yorkshire Terrier, uh, not Yorkshire Terrier, sorry, Jack Russell, um, that was making a lot of racket. And this, this is an open air bar in the middle of a, a reserve. And then it, we were just chatting and ignoring this dog. But at one point it ran back in the bar and underneath my legs, followed by a much larger dog. They proceeded to have a big fight on the floor next to me in the dark. And I'm just looking at this dog thinking, it looks really weird. I've never seen a dog like this. What kind of dog is that? Bearing in mind, I've, I'm training to be a safari guide at this point. I probably should have mentioned that. Then I'm thinking, what, what on earth type of dog is this? I've never seen a dog that's so spotty and has a <laughs> long tail. Um, only to then realize that it's a blooming leopard. And this leopard is having a fight with the Jet Russell under my legs in a bar. And when I turned around, the three guys that I were with were all standing on top of the bar, um, crapping themselves and just staring at me. Thinking, what is this girl doing? Why is she sitting so close to a ferocious man-eating leopard? 
And I had to admit to them that I hadn't realized it was a leopard. And that was probably one of the most mortifying <laughs> moments of my life. <laughs> good on you, though, because a lot of people that, probably would have gone, enthusiast. yeah, I'm a badass. Uh, good on you for just being like, oh, actually. <laughs> I thought it was a big dog. <laughs> <laughs> Oops, it was dark. <laughs> <laughs> and I did get teased a lot about that going on. But as, as you said, I think it's really important to acknowledge your mistakes and, <laughs> and learn from them and not be afraid to to make mistakes and I think that's probably one of my biggest messages to girls out there because I I never I was never someone that stuck my hand up in class even if I thought I knew the answers um because I was so scared of being wrong in front of people but actually you don't get judged um so if I could ever say to any girls growing up is just not be afraid and and speak up because I think I'm not, I'm really proud of where I am today, but I do often wonder if I can push myself harder when I was younger, whether I would have made it here earlier in life. Because I'm really old now, as you know, Emma. You're not really old. (laughs) Put a a sock in it, please. (laughs) In essence, I'm saying thank you for being awesome and a snake wrangling force for good. And thank you for talking to me about not only your life, but also shedding some light on some of the the deeper issues that, you know, we could have just talked about elephants and cheetahs and how cool they are. But thanks for having a proper, honest and frank conversation about what you see the situation is in the places that you work in. Oh, thanks, Emma. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you. I forgot we were actually recording this. I was just chatting to that's you. The, that's the main aim. <laughs> I hope that some people listen to this and actually enjoy it. And for anyone that is interested in having a read of Girl of the Wild by Rosie Miles, you can find it on uh, Amazon as a paperback and an ebook, and I'll pop a little link uh, in the description as well. So, Rosie, where can people get more from you if they would like to, to uh, other than your lovely book? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going to try and get to, uh, back on my social media. I've been a bit slack because my phone broke and I'm living in the middle of nowhere. But um, the best place to follow me is on Instagram at uh, safari underscore smiles. Um, and I will try... a to get a lot more active on there and share some of my crazy stories because if you have read Girl of the Wild or you do read Girl of the Wild, those stories are tame compared to what my life is like in Malawi right now because that is, I I think I could write a book a week right now. I'm looking forward to <laughs> yes. books two, three, so, five yeah. and seven. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, watch this space and you'll hear some more of my nuts life in the bush. I immensely look forward to it. And you can get more from For What It's Earth, of course, on our social media too. We're on uh, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can drop us an email at forwhatitsearthpod at gmail.com. Let us know what one good thing you've been up to. Or if you've got anyone that you think we should chat to, um, because if you haven't noticed, I've taken over the reins without Lloyd for a little bit because he's a little bit busy um, welcoming a new member of his family. So I need cool people to speak to while we while we give him a little bit of a break to adjust um, to life as a dad. And uh, we'll see you very soon uh, for another episode. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.